All right, look me in the eyeballs. All right, your mom and dad are going to ask you, why does Jesus rank as the best? Why is Jesus the best? What's the best thing Jesus did? And you're going to be able to tell them, right? Say yes. Awesome. All right, here we go. Um, just because we had the kids, I thought, man, I got to talk to them, you know? Um, but haven't you noticed how we love to rank things? I mean, everywhere you go, I, I feel like you get on social media, especially Facebook, and you're just looking at different rankings of different things. Um, I've noticed even uh, just living life in this Christmas season that we love to rank things in the Christmas spirit. Here's just a few things I've seen. Um, I've seen rankings of the best Christmas movies. Haven't you? Uh, National Lampoons, Christmas Story, Charlie Brown, Home Alone, uh, A Modern Four Christmases, um, which is your favorite? Which one? Not, not just your favorite, but the best. We want to take it a step farther. Um, what's the best Christmas drink? Eggnog? Wassel? A peppermint mocha? But even if it's not Christmas, uh, you'll see that there's this constant, there's this obsession with us wanting to uncover the best. We debate, what's the best restaurant? Who are the best song artists? The best athletes? In fact, I was even thinking about this. The, the last several times I've turned on ESPN, it's just debate. If it's not live sports, it's debate. It's not even commentating about sports. It's debate about sports. Then you think about little kids. Little kids, uh, I, I did this, and maybe if, if, if you're a child, that you argue about who has the smartest, the strongest, or the coolest parent. Heck, we um, even love uh, shows about, but we, we even love uh, dog shows. Uh, not dog television shows, like dog pageants, more or less, of what is the best breed of dog? What is the best dog within a dog breed? We love beauty pageant. Who's the most beautiful? But have you ever stopped to think, why are we so obsessed with supremacy? See, no matter your age, your gender, your race, there's something. There's something in your human heart that craves to experience the supreme. And I'd go even a step farther than experiencing the supreme, that we want to share in the glory of the supreme. Because in our honest moments, we may, we may not be certain of who or what is supreme, but we know that the supreme is not found in us. See, we know our faults, we know our failures, we know our shortcomings all too intimately to claim supremacy for ourselves. And this is what John's getting after in these closing verses. This is what he's trying to do in these last five verses, verses 14 to 18. If you've been with us uh, the last two weeks, uh, we've been in John chapter 1, uh, the previous two weeks before this, verses 1 to 13, and we've seen Jesus referred to as the Logos. And the Logos is translated as the Word throughout this whole prologue, verses 1 to 18. We've heard this Logos, uh, this Jesus, he's, he's been called the Light. And logos and light, they're airy terms, they're philosophical terms. But in verse 14, we make a big shift. There's this shift to showing that this word, this Jesus, this light, is superior. And he's superior to all kinds of Old Testament images. We had these philosophical terms in verses 1 to 13. Now we have these concrete people, these concrete things to compare Jesus to. And these concrete Old Testament images are ways that Jesus, or ways that God communicated who he was to his people. 
In verse 14, you see that, you don't see, I'll show you in just a second. You see that Jesus, he, he's superior in how much he reveals himself to his people than the tabernacle. He's superior, he's superior to how he reveals himself in his Old Testament prophets, verses 15. And then with Moses, he's superior to how much, you, you see a little bit with Moses, but you see a lot in Jesus, as verses 16 and 17. So let's look at verse 14 first. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt. Uh, this word dwelt, you, you could say, and the only other way it's translated is to pitch a tent. <laughs> uh, so how does this even make sense? The word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. I mean, who, who talks like that? Well, to you and me, that sounds crazy. But if you were in Jesus' audience, you, it would make a lot of sense to you. Because, see, Jesus, or, or God used to dwell in a tent. You do that, don't you? You know, you, you, you get out of the land of Egypt, you get across the Red Sea, and God reveals himself to his people in a tent. It's called the tabernacle. This is the place where God dwelt. This was where Israel, God's people, came to worship. See, God dwelt. What happened was um, you had the, um, if you've seen the old movie, you see that, um, you don't see the old movie, you can read the Bible too. Um, You've got uh, the Ten Commandments, these two stones, and they are put in a box, the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant is carried around. There's a real specific way to carry it around. And you put the Ark of the Covenant in this big tent, part of this tent called Tent of Tabernacles. And see, God gave them that before they got to Israel, because when they got to Israel, they didn't need a tent anymore. They need the tabernacle. You know what they had. They had the temple. So God was always with them. And you see, it's real clear that Jesus is better than a box. See, God's presence was real in the box, but his presence was unseen. And now Jesus has come and he's dwelled with us in the flesh. You can touch him. You can see him. You can smell him. Because Jesus came to take up residence among us. And this is far more intimate than the way he dwelled with the people when they had their tabernacle. And way more intimate even than the temple. So he's superior to the tabernacle, verse 14. He's superior to John the Baptist. You see it in verse 15. It's this parenthesis. Um, and the first time I read it, I thought, gosh, this would be a lot cleaner if verse 15 wasn't in there. If we just, just skip verse 15 and go from 14 to 16, this would make more sense. But then I saw verse 15 is pivotal because what he's, John the Baptist is really setting the stage to this whole superiority discussion. And you see this, John the Baptist... Uh, he saw himself as in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He's kind of the last installment. You had Isaiah, you had Jeremiah, you had Ezekiel, you had Jonah, you had Micah, you had Amos, you had all these prophets, and then John the Baptist is the last one. And John the Baptist just happens to be first cousins with Jesus. And he was born six months earlier. He started his public ministry earlier. But he, he sees himself as inferior. That's why he says... Um, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, after me, meaning he came after me in his public ministry and after me in birth, yet he ranks before me because he was before me. This was John the Baptist talking. John the Baptist, even though he was older, even though he started his ministry before him, he would have been seen to have a leg up on Jesus in terms of religious leaders' rankings because they viewed age and career length as in very high terms. And for the, John the Baptist to just shrug off both to take a position of inferiority, it's significant. But what he understands, that even though 
These two things are true of him. Jesus was before him. Jesus was pre-existent. And that's the ultimate trump card. So he's superior to John the Baptist. Lastly, he's superior to Moses, verses 16 and 17. You see that, that phrase in verse 16, grace upon grace? Well, this first mention of grace pertains to Moses and the law. And the second mention of grace means the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. So the pivotal question is, what's the relationship between grace and grace? Well, the word that's used here in verse 16, you see it, it's upon. It's not a great translation, but it's about as clean as we're going to get. Because what happens here is what John's trying to do is tell us that this law of Moses is grace. God was gracious to his people even in the time of Moses, that he, he rescued them from Egypt. He gave them the law. He fed them in the desert. This was grace. But this is grace in a seed-like form. This is lowercase grace. And then Jesus comes. He's full of grace and truth. This is uppercase grace. This is grace, not in a seed-like form, but fully bloomed. It's still grace. A plant's still a plant with a seed and with it fully bloomed. You can still spell grace with a G, whether it's lowercase or capital, but one is clearly superior. But how is it superior? You heard the passage that Betsy read earlier. It's this fascinating, uh, uh, it's this fascinating um, story about Moses. And Moses asks to see God. And God says, okay, I'm going to let you see me, but I'm only going to give you a glimpse. Not a gaze, but a glimpse. And I'm only going to let you see my back. Not my face, but just my back. Glimpse, back. Jesus, gaze, face. It's superior. See, Jesus overcame both obstacles that the people, all people have always had of seeing God. God is a spirit, but Jesus overcomes that obstacle and becomes a man. The other obstacle is that man can't see God because we're sinful. But Jesus was sinless. And this is what makes Jesus superior. So don't you see what John's doing here? With all three of these things, tabernacle, John the Baptist, who's in line with the Old Testament prophets, and with Moses, he's trying to show us that Jesus is superior to all these. Yes, God's revealed himself to, to, to his people in these ways, but Jesus comes and puts an exclamation point on it. It's crystal clear in the face of Jesus because the word has become flesh. The word become flesh. It's one of the most important phrases in all the Bible because now what was unseen is now seen. The word did not change into flesh. The word did not appear to be flesh. The word became flesh. And this word from flesh, it's a strong word. I mean, you really, it's a crude word. You could translate it as meaty. The word became meaty. And what John's trying to do is use a form of expression in a very blunt way to communicate to us that God has become a man and we have seen his glory. This glory is now tangible, and you can touch it. But Jesus and his glory and John's gospel is not a display of power. 
It's not his miracles. It's not his iconic teachings that rank as his most supreme displays of his glory. In the book of John, the most supreme way that he glorifies himself is in his suffering. It's the greatest irony of all. And the cross represents not just his physical suffering, but also shows that he's been severed from his relationship with the Father. You see verse 18. No one has ever seen the Father, the only God, who's at the Father's side. This is the only place that Jesus knew was being at the Father's side. But now on the cross, God's abandoning. God's not answering his prayers anymore. He's forsaken Jesus utterly. And that's his suffering. But according to John, that's his glory. This intimacy that the Father and the Son has, it's unmatched. Think about it this way. Uh, we've lived in our house for about two years. And um, people, when people come over for the first time, you know, we usually take them on a house tour. And uh, one uh, place of contention for Jenna is I like to show people our bedroom. She doesn't like that. And, um, you know, our bedroom's usually, you know, doors wide open. She's like, hey, when we had people, just don't take them in the bedroom. And it's clean. I mean, there's, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing that anybody should be able to see. But she, it's this picture of our bedroom. But imagine that I, I break the rule between Jen and I, and I do take people in there. And imagine somebody, maybe it's, hopefully it's not you, you say, hey, I'm just going to hop in your bed and get under the covers. You know how weird that would be? Because the only people who get in my bed at this point are me and Jenna, and we have an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old, and we're all piled in there this morning about 7.15. And eventually, at some point, for Eden, for Audrey, and for Brooks, it's going to be weird for them to just hop in the bed and get under the covers. Why? Because the bedroom, especially one's bed, is an intimate space. And Jesus has the most intimate of all relationships with the Father, and he left all of that, all the intimacy that he had, to be among a people who rejected him. He took on flesh. He suffered the ridicule of man. He was misunderstood. And ultimately, he was banished from the presence of the Father on the cross. So why? Why would he do all this? Because he had to have you, friend. He loved you. He came to dwell with you so that you'd never have to be alone. Rolling Stone, um, recently, uh, they, they interviewed Elon Musk. Uh, some of you may know Elon Musk. He's the visionary CEO of the, of the car company Tesla. And in this interview, they're asking a lot about his company, and all of a sudden, they start asking him personal questions, and he actually answers them. Uh, he doesn't give coach speak and says nothing. He says this um, about his own personal life. He says, I'll never be happy without having someone. Going to sleep alone kills me. When I was a child, there's one thing I said. I never want to be alone. But what Christmas tells Elon Musk and what it tells you and what it tells me is that we never have to fear being alone. Because Jesus took on flesh. He was abandoned by the Father on the cross so that you and I might be brought in on the most intimate of all relationships. See, God's not remote. He's not stern. He's not impersonal. He's not even a mystical God. He is a God who's revealed himself in the flesh, and you can actually know him. That's why Jesus came. That's why he took on flesh. It was for you. 
It gives us a, an incredibly powerful picture of love. Both of God's love for us, but also for our love for others. It gives us a powerful motivation to serve. See, you can't accuse Jesus of being aloof to you. You can't accuse him of remaining comfortable in the bosom of his father because he came and he got involved and he got vulnerable, even vulnerable unto death. So what that means for you and for me, friends, church, is that we can't remain aloof to the needs of others. We too have to get involved and we have to get involved to the point of vulnerability. What does that look like? What does it look like to this powerful motivation to serve to get so involved that it's going to cost you something? Well, think about your giving. You can give here and there. You can throw a little bit in the plate here and there. You can think about your money and, and, and give a little when people ask. But you don't give in such a way that it cuts into your savings or your investments or your lifestyle. If that's you, then you're not really getting involved because you've not become vulnerable. And you begin to give like Jesus when you become vulnerable. Think about, um, think about getting involved here at the church. You can come to church. You can come Christmas and Easter. You can come most Sundays. You can come almost all Sundays and not really get involved, not really become vulnerable. That's just coming for 60 to 90 minutes and sitting here and listening to me and listening to Justin. Even if you take the next step, you come most Sundays and you're willing to go, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to do some small talk on either side of the service. I'm even willing to shake people's hands during the greeting of peace. Well, that's not really getting involved. Well, getting involved, becoming vulnerable, what that is, that means joining. That means getting in a neighborhood group. That means opening up about your life and telling people that you, that you're ashamed, the things you're ashamed of. That means listening to other people and loving them when they tell you shameful things about themselves. That's getting involved around here. Think about getting in, to, to, take loving uh, people who are hurting, needy people, poor people, people are different than you. Well, the way that you get involved, the way you become vulnerable is that you begin to show sympathy towards them. And it's going to cost you something. B.B. Uh, Warfield, he's a famous American theologian, 19th century. Um, he gave a Christmas sermon that I read this week, and here's a quote from it. He says, uh, self-sacrifice will lead us not away from but into the midst of people. Wherever people suffer... There the Christian will be to comfort. Wherever people strive, there the Christian will be to help. Wherever people fail, there will the Christian be to uplift. Wherever people succeed, there the Christian will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self and others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. End quote. Is this a brand of Christianity that you embrace? Is this what you think Christmas is really all about? It means so much more than this service. It means so much more than what you're doing with your family. What Christmas means is to get beyond a brand of Christianity that's just a civil or a folk religion, that's just accepted by default because of our social identity. It means so much more than coming again on Easter. It means so much more than what we do here for 60 to 90 minutes. See, this brand of Christianity doesn't cost you anything. 
in the name of Jesus. But for Jesus, it cost him his life. So have you become self-forgetful to the degree that you rejoice with other people's successes? That you comfort those who suffer, that you strive when people need help? Have you become what Warfield says, absorbed in the needs of others? That you don't just live the life that you have, but you live a thousand lives. See, friends, you and I can get involved. We can become vulnerable because Jesus did not stand on the sidelines of heaven so that we could live our lives alone. The word became flesh, dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only son given of the father full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you that you did not sit on the sidelines. Thank you that um, you came to us and you've become absorbed in our lives. Lord, that you didn't just take on um, our frailty by becoming a human, but Lord, you took upon our sin and you died for us. So, Lord, we give you praise for that. We give you praise that you rose again and showed that you're more powerful than sin and death. Uh, Lord, that you are um, even more powerful than our uh, self-interest and our selfishness. And, Lord, that you want to empower us to serve other people. So, Lord, help us serve other people, not just modeling you, but being empowered by you. Do this for your glory, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.